Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And for our final episode of 2017, we're going to be looking at our favourite films of the year. And some of our guests will also be dropping by to share some of their opinions. We'll be letting you know what's happening in Melbourne over the next few weeks in our Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, don your space helmet, look wistfully towards the horizon, jump into your X-Wing Starfighter and get ready to blow something up. It's Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. When I found you, I saw raw, untamed power. And beyond that, director of a key film of my teenage years takes the helm of the sequel to a key film of my childhood years with Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Forty years after Star Wars first exploded onto the screen, brick filmmaker Ryan Johnson shoots the eighth instalment in the main franchise, notwithstanding last year's Rogue One spin-off. The multi-pronged action starts almost immediately after the conclusion of 2015 Star Wars The Force Awakens. Or should I say, Arakens? <laughs> After a space battle where Poe Dameron, Oscar Isaac, helps secure a costly victory for the Resistance, Daisy Ridley's Ray lands on a remote island on a remote planet, sheltering a grizzled and bitter Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill. And a spoiler alert that we will be discussing spoilers in our conversation of the film. So uh, please make sure uh, you're happy with that before you listen on. Uh, You may remember that the last film ended with an epic revolving shot of that duo on this island as she presented him with a lightsaber. He immediately tosses it aside and dispenses a harsh training regime. Much as the last film allayed fears that the involvement of the original cast would extend only to pandering cameos, Hamill is given quite a lot to do as Skywalker. The film eventually alternates between his harsh mentoring of Rey, a slow burn siege of a rebel ship by the Last Order, and shenanigans on a Monte Carlo-esque planet featuring John Boyega as Finn and Kelly Marie Tran as Rose. There's so much more going on and I haven't even mentioned Lord Snoke, Adam Driver as Kylo Ren or Carrie Fisher's final performance as General Leia. And then, of course, there are the Porgs. Eloise is the force with The Last Jedi. (laughs) <laughs> the film or the, the or Jedi? literally. No, no, the film. The film. I, I am undecided on this film. I think in some ways it's very good. In fact, quite excellent. And I think in some ways it is highly flawed. I did really enjoy it and I came out of it. You know, I loved the experience and I thought in terms of narrative, in terms of story, in terms of character, I think this film is very strong. It's so busy. There's so much going on. For the majority of the film, there's three kind of storylines just being told simultaneously. Three places, three different sets of characters who are kind of exploring different areas. And I think that's done quite well and really engages 
us in the storyline and in the galaxy and in its operations. But I think in some other ways it perhaps didn't work quite so well. But, I mean, it's two and a half hours long and I didn't feel that it lagged at all. I felt like it totally needed all of those times. In fact, there was a moment towards the end before the climax when I felt as though it was about to end on a cliffhanger and I was like, don't end now. Like, (laughs) this would be so mean. Um, And then, of course, it kept going for like another 20 minutes or something, which was so good. I was really, really pleased that it did. Probably some things that we can get into later when you talk a bit more. I felt that I responded more emotionally and more immediately to The Force Awakens. And also to Rogue One as films, just watching them for the first time. Then I did this. But I think this is a better film than both of those, actually. You know, and we can talk about, about why, maybe. But Andy? Yeah, I thought this was had a really high degree of difficulty, this film. Um, it was... Basically, there was a lot that Ryan Johnson had to do. There's a whole bunch... There's millions of Star Wars nerds who are going to be spotting, you know, errors in colours of, you know, lightsaber handles or something like that. Uh, and... He's got a lot of um, intellectual property to move from point A to point B, I imagine. There was a lot of stuff he brought in, which I thought worked really well. Humour, I don't think there's been a funnier Star Wars movie. Right from the early scene where he throws the lightsaber over his shoulder, you're like, okay, this tone is totally different to anyone we've seen before, especially Rogue One, which had that amazing ending, which, you know, even had the strange Carrie Fisher thing. So I thought there was a lot more Carrie Fisher and, uh, and Mark Hamill than I was expecting, which I wasn't, didn't think was a bad thing. For the most part, I thought it worked really, really well. I saw it IMAX 3D, so the, it was spectacular. One of, the, one of the best parts actually was quite early on where you realise Ryan Johnson does have a grip on all of this stuff, where you go from that familiar scrolling script at the beginning, just like letting you know where you are, pan down through space to a spaceship, straight into a battle as per normal. But then within like a few minutes, we're in a situation where there's a race against a clock where a bunch of bombs need to fall in a particular place. There's one woman who has to be able to press this button at a particular point in time. And this whole massive thing is suddenly brought down to one person in a very human sort of situation. And he seems to be able to do that really, really well with a bit of humour and stuff to be able to pull it all together. So it does kind of work as a standalone film, I think. There was a bit of undercharacterization, I thought, with Finn and a couple of other people that if you hadn't seen Force Awakens, you might be a bit lost or not quite cared about the storyline as much. But for the most part, I thought it really worked. Mm. I, I really love that scene, that, uh, that initial kind of setup with that woman who had to um, set off all of those bombs. I mean, you know, it was a, a very emotionally engaging and also just visually spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, sh- that final shot where the bombs all drop was incredible. My general impression actually was probably less positively disposed to the film. Although I'm trying, again, like you, Eloise, um, I feel quite ambivalent about my... I'm not quite sure what my response is still now, three days after seeing it. I agree there were some beautifully composed images in the film and I think they were actually a highlight of the movie uh, were these sort of stylistic flourishes that to me felt almost self-conscious because they were embedded in... Like, the whole film wasn't working at that level. It was only momentarily. For example, there's this sort of amazing... uh, Well, I thought it was an amazing sequence with uh, Ray where she's confronting the dark side of the Force-ish visually and there's that Hall of Mirrors kind of thing where she's looking at herself and, like, all that kind of trippy imagery. Um, I thought that was really cool and interesting. But at the same time, it also felt like he was enjoying himself in those moments. Well, I was enjoying myself anyway as a viewer in those moments much more than the rest of the film, which I found, I just found like it was a bit of a mess. There was a lot going on, which I couldn't, I I wasn't, I didn't particularly care about, except for, weirdly, the Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker trajectory. And I thought 
that was what was really interesting about this film was his whole character arc and his performance, in fact, which he I gave a great was performance. Really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really liked his character arc as well, and I liked him as a character and everything that he said and his kind of growth towards Ray and his final expression towards the, the group of people at, at the end was all very believable in terms of his character trajectory going from the the initial three, the initial trilogy, um, and where he wound up. I felt like what really was a weakness for me in those scenes was the quality of the filming in those outside the really? island scenes. It was the, it looked terrible. It looked Whoa. so bad. It looked like a really dodgy camera was used which I know is not the case and I'm wondering you know I'm willing to suspect that possibly the projection in the cinema I saw it at was not 100% but then again I can't say but I just feel like um, obviously there are certain cameras designed these days that are have optimal filming conditions inside rather than outside with interiors not exteriors but it just looked really bad it looked very cheap to me those scenes and that was a real shame the color was just very gray and um, flat that is island in (laughs) generally no that's not what i mean i mean it just didn't it just really looked very poor to me and i thought god i mean i know i harp on about this but if this was a film camera the colors would show up better right there would be a better distinction between the grass and the rocks and the sky and the sea, it didn't look very good to me. And that was really unfortunate. That ruined those scenes for me quite a lot. Mm. Well, on a a similar topic, I thought there was some quite dodgy CGI work as well, particularly on that Monte Carlo-type casino planet where they're running around on those whatever the hell, the creatures. Horse creatures. Yeah, the horse Mm. creature things. It was just painfully, obviously fake. And it rushed through those sequences in a sort of at a blistering pace, I would have appreciated more. I, yeah, the, the temporality of the film was very interesting because I thought it was very unweighted. You know, some scenes, some planets deserved far more attention than what it gave, and then other moments seemed to drag. I, I don't know. I, there was no consistency there. I guess right. Because the one thing I really loved was the use of red. I mean, that was an unusual artistic kind of flourish, I suppose, that he put on there. Like, it's an amazing scene where Lord Snoke and uh, Kylo Ren and uh, Ray are in one room and this beautiful sort of dome. It's almost like something from a Pal Pressburger movie or something like that. Mm. Or a Kurosawa, probably. Um, even more mm. similar. I thought that was the highlight of the film. Yeah, and that, and then That's the red surprising. salt planet that they go to. The red salt planet was great. Speaking of red, that first scene with Donald Gleeson in the ship. Yes. And that mm. other commander, that red was terrible. I thought I was just like, calm down. Can we just, you know, turn some turn some of these red lights off? It was <laughs> it was very, you know, very obvious, quite poor to me. Yeah, but it's bang there on the poster as well. That red fading to black. It's true. Thing, it's true. Which, yeah, I thought mm. that was that was pretty interesting the cross-cutting which was necessary in order to to tell the story because there were three stories going on at the same time basically I just didn't think worked very well there was that the first time I noticed the cross-cutting and I do think it got better it got a lot stronger was when it was a close-up I think of Leia's face and then it cut to Kylo Ren and he was thinking about shooting someone or something and then it cut back to Leia and then it cuts back to Kylo Ren and he hesitates the, the implication is that he's thinking about his mother and that that you know, element of humanity is something that draws him back. 
But I just thought that was really clunkily done and, you know, not very aligned visually in, in the cuts. And so it didn't work quite as smoothly as I think Ryan Johnson perhaps intended. A bit later, it, it did work quite well. And I think the cross-cutting when Ray and Kylo Ren had both, you know, linked up to the force, that's not the correct terminology, I apologise, but, you know, and we're speaking to each other. Those were quite well done and I think very powerful, those scenes. Yeah, this force as Skype thing, I think, is kind of, it was pretty strangely introduced. I wasn't quite on board with it to begin with, but then afterwards it was like... I was. I mean, wasn't that in the original trilogy? I feel, I have some memory of that happening. I don't recall it being used quite like this. No, not to that extent. But I mean, I think that's okay. You know, that's what Ryan Johnson is obviously doing, is calling on all of these elements that had been set up in the galaxy and, yeah. and saying and so, that, yes, they can, they're still... And it's interesting the nods that he does give to that. There's a couple of lines where people will say something like, that's a cheap shot and you'll you know that there is actually you know a double meaning to that because obviously he's referring to a scene that he's <coughs> nodding to towards the Empire Strikes <laughs> right. Back. And he sets up a lot of scenes quite similarly to some of these earlier parts and, mm-hmm. but then he sends them, sends them in a different direction which I thought was kind of cool because obviously he's a colossal fan of the first, you know, the 70s, early 80s movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of nice the way that he will put that sort of stuff in. One thing that was really disappointing was the score, which I can barely remember at all. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. Obviously, you guys know the score for Rogue One was batshit bad, but this was great. I loved it. I thought it was so strong. I can't remember it either, actually. I mean, it's it's the same (laughs) as all of the others. It had had different different elements, but I thought it was very strong, um, really counted the energy in the scenes very well. I loved the score. Right. Um, and I stayed in the credits right through the end because I wanted to listen. Yeah. Listen to so I have a question for you guys. Do you think this is a Ryan Johnson film? Because there's so much talk about do directors with visions actually make it through these colossal properties? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it is really. Because, I've well, already we're talking about how wonderful it is that he, uh, he manages to do all the things he has to do because it's part of a franchise. Do you mean in the way that um, Thor Ragnarok is a yeah, Taika Waititi, Waititi yeah. film? You know, it's yeah, agreed that, that it is a Taika Waititi is, film, whereas other Marvel films aren't. I mean, it's definitely different to the last few Star Wars, and so I think that you could say, yes, it is. But, I, you know, I don't think that that affects the power of the film one way or the other. Right. Yeah, there were a few shots that I thought was very specific to him, like thinking of Jumper, sorry, Looper, not Jumper, God, I don't want to think about Jumper. Um, Looper, uh, the mirror of a res ed scene where she's, look, she's looking at her reflections and there's a clicking and all that sort of stuff, yeah. that stuff. And then there's an amazing scene, well, we haven't even talked about Laura Dern yet, where Laura Dern, you know, does this amazing kamikaze move and then there's silence. Yes, I love that. was that. great. That sort of stuff. Again, was yeah. That was an incredible awesome. sequence, that. Um, and I always love when a film kind of, you know, turns the tables and just cuts to silence. Yeah, I agree completely agree like and uh, the frustration for me with this film is that these stunning moments are interspersed with a lot of what I found quite turgid blockbuster filmmaking that wasn't particularly entertaining despite these quite beautiful and stunning moments and despite a final act which I thought was quite strong I mean I feel the same Anders which I said like I I feel like I was more entertained and perhaps moved immediately by Rogue One but I don't think it's as good a film do you agree that it's not as good but it's maybe more interesting somehow yeah I I, I sort of dismissed this outright when I finished I was like that was sort of nothing and boring but I actually wouldn't mind seeing it again so I'm not which Mm. is not how I felt about Rogue One. So yeah. maybe that, yeah, maybe that is the sign of... Of something more. It is a densely packed film. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I'm just, I feel really angry about this film because 
obviously Laura Dern, who we haven't touched on, but she was amazing. And she played this character who is kind of, um, you know, has this incredibly eloquent grand entrance and is like meant to be respected. But then we see her doing things and because of the way her actions are framed within the narrative, we're invited to question her um, knowledge and her um, Mm, intentions from the audience as to what she's doing and, and to doubt her. And in the end, it's revealed that obviously she's amazing and that she is an admiral, vice admiral, and she's very worthy of that position and that um, General Leia Organa is also very worthy of her position and that some upstart Poe Dameron is not and he needs to calm the F down. But I'm really angry because he caused the initial battle and loss of life of the resistance and then the second one, he also caused it by not believing that vice admiral... Holdo had everyone's best interests. He gets to be in the third movie. He gets to be a hero at the end. He gets to be the good guy and I'm so angry. I mean, obviously (laughs) um, Oscar Isaac is great, but I'm just really, really angry that that's the way the story went and, you know, the fact that Leia is not going to be in the the episode nine was not planned and we can talk about that more later. That made me cry a lot. I cried a lot in this movie um, to do with Carrie Fisher. But, um, you know, the fact that he got to just kind of be the grand guy that made a lot of rash decisions and still at the end of the day is this hero, that really made me quite angry. And I think I feel like now I'm coming from the place of a fan um, and I just feel like it's not fair. (laughs) Um, Okay. Did anyone else feel that way? I mean, that I mean, that's basically it. He he was responsible for all of these deaths yeah, and for like. I didn't think he like came across quite as the hero, quite as a hero toward the end. I thought it was, it was Luke that gave the ultimate sacrifice because well, there's yes. a lot of ultimate sacrifices given in this film. No, but he gets to be in the next movie and he will probably like still get to be in charge. Yeah, somehow. That's a really what I really mean. great cocksure fighter pilot who is bad at making decisions. It just it, it just it drove me up the wall. Oh, I kind of <laughs> like I like the depth that it gave to him because there's you know there was there was a lot of the stuff that Luke was doing in the first time with no comeuppance, but here he gets a bit of comeuppance. But did he learn? He didn't. It didn't oh, seem to point. me that yeah, he learned I don't anything. Know if he learned. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, he's not a Jedi, so he doesn't have that you know that weighty need to learn and to grow like Ray does. But yeah, him and Finn, and I just I simply don't like Finn as a character. You know, you mentioned the humor in this film, which there is and I appreciate it because there always was humour in the originals, particularly from Harrison Ford. Han Solo was quite funny, but Harrison Ford is a bit funny. I feel like maybe Finn is trying to do that that shtick, that same kind of Harrison Ford shtick, and I just don't think it maybe works as well yeah, somehow. possibly. I think a lot of, a lot of the humour actually came out of scenes. Mm. Like it, was, it wasn't imp- imposed upon... I mean, we'll talk about Paul because we haven't even got to them yet, but yeah. before we get there, like, there was a lot of stuff like, you know, you seem to have time on your hands to be able to teach me. You're not doing much with your day. You know, yeah. sort of, these sorts of lines that kind of organically fit into the scene I thought worked quite well. And that great fo- phone conversation gag at the beginning. Yeah, that, that was quite good. Yeah, like this, yeah, that was, that was kind of cool, I thought. There was a bit of like the Hound Solo about that. The problems I had with the uh, Carrie Fisher, Laura Dern scenes was like, oh my God, it's Carrie Fisher, oh my God, it's Laura Dern, how brilliant are they? And I was barely paying attention to what they were actually talking about. Right. So I was just like, oh, I yeah, love these I, people yeah. so much, I can't believe that they're, they're, too, they're kind of too famous and too yeah. good for this film. Laura in Dern way. in particular, yeah. I, I was like, you're just Laura Dern, but no, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, no, she's, uh, yeah, she's <laughs> not, you can never, not, it's never not her. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, it was never not her. Yeah. Um, which is... And so it was interesting seeing her in this environment. Was, wasn't it? With that hair. Yeah. Carrie Fisher wrote some of her own lines in this film and particularly Mm. I think the farewell um, between Carrie Fisher and Laura Dern was written by the two of them together. They kind of came up with what would be the most appropriate emotional conversation that these 
two grand women have. That's interesting because that was a really good conversation. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah, that all comes out of the backstory of this spin-off novel, novellas that have been coming out right. recently, which explores um, Leia's like life pre a new hope mm-hmm. and so it turns out they've actually got decades of friendship right, which, right. you know we'll okay so that with. yeah that's very that's very weighty um i feel like crying again right now <laughs> <laughs> don't you guys just miss one shot storytelling with the three acts and it's all finished and resolved and we move on yeah this is starting to turn into something that would be better as a tv series i think there's so much they want to put in here and they're kind of it was obviously pushed to two hours 32 minutes there's probably more stuff that he wants to put in that would Maybe work sure. better as like a because this is never going to end. I don't think it would work better as a TV series. I mean, it will never end, and like that's just the thing. And I think one of the ways to maybe control this matter that we have in front of us is to keep considering each trilogy as its own. And obviously, this trilogy harkens back to the original, and it has to because it's a like continuing on from that story more so than the the last trilogy which was the prequels but to just consider each three in isolation somehow and that might might help a bit more um i I don't think it would be better as a tv series um porgs an acceptable part of world building or distracting cutesy annoyance uh cutesy annoyance yeah i found them annoying I found well, it didn't really do anything with. It. I thought I thought the comedy was lame. I, I thought, and sorry, I, I, I do beg to differ with your uh, characterization of the comedy in general. Like the comedy in general in the film, I didn't find particularly witty. Apart from uh, again, the Mark Hamill uh, Daisy Ridley banter. I think that was. I, I find myself constantly drawn back to that storyline as the thing that was interesting about this film. But, he's um, like the, the crusty old man who doesn't want to change his ways but he's being um, convinced to by a younger woman who he knows he has to kind of follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So it, it felt like it was organic within the characters. Yeah, but yeah. I agree I didn't like it in well, the rest of it. It an Obi-Wan Kenobi story line all over again in a way. Kind of, yeah. yeah. yeah it was, wasn't it? They're kind of cute, I guess. The Porgs. Yes. I, I really – I mean, they are cute, that's true, but I'm considering – I'm thinking about them in comparison to Ewoks, Return of the Jedi, <laughs> which I love, and I love Return of the Jedi. I think it's an excellent film. But the difference – I was talking to some people about this last night because I was whinging about the Porgs <laughs> – is that the Ewoks actually had a functional role to play within the narrative and that they assisted the battle. Um, the Porgs don't do anything at all. All they do is like, you know, they're there for some stupid joke about how like Chewie doesn't get to eat his dinner and then they're just <laughs> annoying and in the way, basically. But they're also used to, dis- to demonstrate the Force. Like in this little montage where, where Luke is explaining what the Force is, you know, to, to Ray, and then that, they're used as this sort of visual um, symbolism of life and birth and the eggs hatching and then the eggs being destroyed by the waves and then the skeleton of the oh, Porg. Yeah, and right. the, so that sort of stuff. Well, that's true, but they could have used anything for that. Like the Porg is not necessary for that story. <laughs> I agree. I, like I was feeling very sceptical about BB-8 when BB-8 first came along and I was like, oh, this is going to be like some merchandising, you know, just like the Porgs. But I love how BB-8 is now a character mm. who does cool things and it got a full amazing moment of epic action in this film and I've, I find the BB-8 endearing in a way that the Porgs are absolutely not. <laughs> Fire. It'll burn the first order down. 
the representation in this film is extraordinary in that you watch it and you realise how unrepresentative the vast majority of Hollywood films are, like in terms of not just uh, racial diversity but women in particular. Uh, I saw someone on Twitter saying, like, it, it felt like it was the first blockbuster film they've seen in a while where, like, every new character could either be a man or a woman. Yeah, it felt yep. like uh, it wasn't just men, 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 endless men. No gender politics discussed in the film and so therefore, you know, everyone's kind yeah. of neutral well, and Well, that, th- yeah. that was Which the thing that was said about The Force Awakens was, like, it was one of the first movies to have background characters who were genuinely diverse. They yeah. were just white yeah. people walking around in outfits. I do want to do a shout out to the Fast and Furious franchise. Oh yes, good. We've been doing this for a decade, right. yep. but uh, yeah, I thought that was a strong, strong part of the film that you can't discount at all. I am um, sorry, Andy. Did you want to? Oh, I was just going to talk about um, how good some of the acting was, in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. I thought Adam Driver was great. I think Daisy oh, Adam Ridley. Driver, I can't yeah. wait to see Daisy Ridley do other things. Yeah, Adam Driver was was excellent. Like, really made you feel and made you understand his struggle between good and evil and his films are all about good and evil yeah. and he you know is perfectly torn between the two and it's developing um, a really nice alan rickman-esque voice as well which i like yes. listen to mm, yes. yeah thinking about the film you know in in its place within the entire universe of star wars um and in comparison to the force awakens and what's going to happen next in episode nine like the force awakens went to such uh, an extent to kind of draw on the mythology of the original films and there was that whole thing where, you know, someone mentions Luke Skywalker and Ray says, I thought he was a myth. You know, that pulled on my heartstrings so much when I saw that years ago Um, and that it it went to such lengths to engage with the original films, which obviously has power beyond what it ever believed and beyond what anyone can account for, I think. But now, Han is now dead, Um, Luke dies or at least just disintegrates he expires it was his time I mean Carrie Fisher has died and so she's not in the the next one although you can say that there was intention for her to be in the next one now you know apart from Chewie there's no link to the original films left and I just feel it's so strange that the you know the Force Awakens and this one has gone to such great lengths to draw on the originals that what is it going to do in the third installation Mm. now i mean i feel like there's some great loss that has occurred and i just i can't imagine what this movie is going to be like and i i as i've said to you i don't particularly like finn as a character i don't think that he's strong enough to carry this film as one of the trio oscar isaac is is charismatic um although i have said i'm annoyed with him (laughs) i mean and ray's amazing obviously daisy ridley is excellent and i think could carry the film but it's obviously going to be on the three of them and i just think Mm. Mm, yeah. I mean, and they're going to have to introduce new characters because they do always do it. It always seems fine, and yeah. you know the mm. the galaxy is endless somehow. Well, I'm very keen to see if Benicio del Toro's character turns up. Oh, I hope not. But I want Justin yeah, Theroux to come. I know. I wish Five there was more of, of him. Oh, I want him and not Benicio del Toro. That would have been so yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. I was a little disappointed with Rose as well. I, mean, oh, I, I liked her a lot. Yeah, I wanted them to be more with her. Yeah, I she agree. Was, I, yeah. I know yeah. she better not be dead. I don't think she will have done. No, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 She's very, very important. I was, I was dissatisfied with what happened to her in the mm. end. Yeah. As well. yeah. But you, you do raise a good point because the those original actors and character, those original characters, have been integral to these films. Yeah. Like I was fully expecting Han Solo to be in the other one for like five seconds, kind of thing. But no, they're like protagonists yep. of these stories. So how is the film going to deal with that? And how is it going to set up episodes I know. Know, 10, 11 and 12 or whatever? 
one word, ghosts. Ghosts, yeah, they never, they're always CGI, CGI Carrie Fisher. There won't be, I've oh heard. God. They thank, said after she died there was some debate. Can I, also, just on this topic, CGI Yoda was obviously fake. Yeah. Again, like yep. bring the puppet back. The puppet works. Yeah, it was so bad. It, I was uh, just yeah, like, I no. didn't like that at all. shift. Yeah. Just suddenly you get Frank Oz's voice back. With yeah. Weird, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and the weird, weird syntax that he has. <laughs> sort of stuff. Like, yeah. It's, it's, kind of, it's such an odd, it's a real odd film. I don't know. I thought it did also lay down the, um, the, uh, Themes about uh, you know fighting the evil empire and we give hope to people. Oh my god! Did you like notice how many times any, any character said hope? Yeah. It was oh, a lot. So many times. And <laughs> so the final many. scene with the kid. I'm sorry, I just cringed. Oh really yes, so kid. hard. The broom kid is the whole the bro- future. Oh god. The broom kid is you and me. Oh <laughs> god, help <laughs> us all if we're all the broom kid. I I don't know. It was just, I was just very on the note. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was telling, not showing. <laughs> I, anyway. I have one more thing to say before we wrap up. We have everything we need, she says. Yeah. Um, but not her. <laughs> oh my god, you know I can't have? believe it. You know it. what that thing is that they have? Hope. <laughs> it's beautiful. Anyway, I'm making a sad face right now. If you think you might like to see Star Wars The Last Jedi, one place you'll definitely be able to catch it is the Astor, where it's the only film screening until January 10th, multiple times a day. What? Check yep. the calendar. It's the only film they're screening. Only film they're screening yep. until January 10th when it's replaced by Tarantino Fest with back-to-back screenings of Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, From Dusk Till Dawn, Kill Bills 1 and 2 and finishing with a 70mm screening of The Hateful Eight. Acme are showing Cosma Lang's documentary about renowned pianist David Helfgott, Hello, I Am David, until January 27. This screens alongside the film that made him famous, Scott Hicks' Shine, which screens until January 25th. Also at Acme is Philippa Lowthorpe's adaptation of Arthur Ransom's legendary kids' adventure story, Swallows and Amazons. That runs from December 21st until January 16. The acclaimed filmed Quest Portrait of an American Family examines family, race and class in 2017 USA and that runs from December 27 until January 3. Finally, myth highlight Sammy Blood is about two sisters who live in Norway's far north battling prejudice and finding their own ways and that screens from December 27 until January 10. Well, I won't get into Call Me By Your Name, which is definitely my favourite film of 2017 but it's everybody's favorite film and I'm sure so many people will be talking about it during this episode so I thought I would highlight two other films that also stand very very close to that film in my reckoning the first is Bong Joon-ho's Okja which um, unfortunately very few people got to see on a cinema screen but look bung bung on your big telly on Netflix you know and you will have such a, I don't know if I want to say a fun time, even though so much of this film is so exhilarating just in terms of its scope and its absolute fearlessness in tackling the issue of how human beings take advantage of our fellow living creatures uh, within the giant wheels of capitalism. I think it's kind of extraordinary that this film even exists and the fact that it exists in the year 2017 when so many of us are reconsidering <laughs> capitalism as an acceptable system to live under is I think really really vital there's some so many wonderful performances and if you're a slightly evil 
vegetarian or vegan like I am, there is a lot of joy to be drawn by watching this film with with carnivores because if they are not in tears by the end of it and severely reconsidering their lifestyle options, that's a person you know you should excise from your life. And secondly, the film that I think is going to stay in my heart for a very, very long time is the beautiful Faces Places or Villages Visages, directed by Agnes Varda and visual artist J.R. This is just one of those films that I think we needed this year, considering it's been such a horrific year along so many um tangents that to have a film that is just so beautifully devoted to exploring the best in people and the best in art and finding connections with each other and finding understanding when when you first start the film and you think oh Agnes Varda she was the originator of French New Wave she has been this extraordinary artist of colossal standing for decades now and she's partnering up with this hipster looking dude who does like photo paste ups but you realize very very quickly they have such an amazing alchemy and such intimate, wonderful understanding of each other. This is an extraordinary duo who are just going to live in cinematic memory for a very, very long time. And if you feel exhausted by 2017, if you feel like that there is nothing that can bring you joy anymore, please watch this movie and please let it fill your heart and viva Agnes forever. (laughs) That was sometime guest and co-host of the podcast Twin Peaks The Return, Hayley Inch, with her two favourite films of the year, Okja and Faces Places. Another person I asked to share their favourite film of the year was actor Ben Rigby, who similarly ignored the very simple instruction for just one film and shared his two favourites. As an aspiring actor in Hollywood, he was on his way back to a service industry job and had some optimistic stories about where he was going to go next after his turn in one of the year's biggest films, Alien Covenant. Apologies for the awful audio quality. Ben was in his car, pulled over on the side of the road when we spoke. Film or films of the year is a is close. I think my top film would have to be The Square just because it delves into like the construction of art in the art world and shows a portrait of this man who's in a very high power position thrust into a really banal pedestrian situation. You know, it kind of highlights his uh, primal fears and tendencies. And I, I like any kind of film that deals with, you know, like body horror or anything that uh, is psychologically challenging for the protagonist, and especially this, you know, high power male, I think, in the climate of what's happened politically and in Hollywood this year. That's, that's a really interesting subject and quite fascinating, especially when it's paired with like our primal urges. So I have to kind of pair that with Ingrid Goes West just because uh, before this film I didn't really like Aubrey Plaza and she really surprised me in this and Elizabeth Olsen is just unreal but the, the screenplay is hilarious and it really delves into uh, millennials and you know you walk into cafes these days and everyone's just on their phone and this is the really really dark side of that and how far people will go to become a part of their idols lives who are essentially Instagram stars and each character was really well thought out and um it just made me laugh hysterically. So yeah, they're my two top films of the year. Okay, well, my criteria for judging what my favourite or what the most important film for me in any given year is, 
is basically the film that I can't stop thinking about when the end of the year arrives. And that's pretty easy because it's a film that I haven't been able to stop thinking about since I saw it three months ago. And I've basically had almost no interest in watching anything else since I saw it. Um, And that film is Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. I'm completely smitten by this movie and it's an interesting phenomenon for me because I can't even think about it without feeling things in my stomach and kind of, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And just recently writing about it, I had the same experience where I was crying while I was writing. So I'm trying to figure out why I love it so much and I know there's a lot of reasons. I mean, it's got so many sort of exquisite separate parts, you know, the direction, the cinematography, the editing... Um, the performances are all beautiful, but it, it adds up to something so much more than all of that. And I think it's probably got more to do with just the way it makes you feel while you're watching it and the way it makes you feel when you leave the cinema and this kind of story about what it feels like to fall in love for the first time completely, utterly, you know, defense, how it makes you completely defenseless and it kind of mimics that in the audience like that's how you feel while you're watching it you let your defenses down I mean if you're watching it with a generous heart you let yourself feel things while you're watching it but even more than it being a story about falling in love for the first time it's about what it feels like to lose that love and I think the the scene that stuck with me repeatedly throughout the last few months is the final scene which I won't say much more about but you know if you're going to see it over the summer do not leave the cinema when the credits start rolling because the film is not finished and if you get up and you miss what's happening on screen by the uh, actor Timothy Chalamet, you will basically be missing the entire film. And that was Joe DiMattia sharing her favourite film, which was also the podcast's favourite film, which, as Hallie pointed out earlier, is everybody's favourite film, Call Me By Your Name. My best film of 2017 is Marjorie Prime, directed by Michael Almereider based on the play by Jordan Harrison. And it stars Tim Robbins, Gina Davis, John Hamm, and a few other people I don't remember. Stylistically, it's very different to Michael Almerider's earlier film. It's sort of a race ahead, crossed with Hal Hartley vampire film called Nadia. It's about a service that provides holographic recreations of deceased loved ones. I've read a review of this film calling it emotionally hallucinogenic in that it takes you on an emotional journey that you're probably not prepared for. It's this weird combination of great sadness and great joy at the same time, like you probably would feel if you were sitting in a room with the recreated simulation of a lost loved one. It's nothing like the miserable film Amour by Michael Haneke, which wallows in the tragedy of mortality and physical degradation. This film is about the miracle of getting a loved one back, not just back to life, but young and healthy and full of promise, the best version of them that you remember, and being in a room with them, with that sort of mix of sadness and great joy. It's sad, but it's also funny, and it made me cry harder than just about any film I've ever seen, and it wasn't even a sad scene that did it. It's just a really powerful and mysterious movie, and it's hard to explain how it works, but it works. It was, yeah, an incredible film, and it's my favourite one of the year. And that was script editor and writer Donovan Wren sharing his favourite film of the year, Marjorie Prime. And now it's our turn with our top five films of 2017. So there's a whole bunch of films that we didn't all get to see, I think, so these are not exhaustive lists, but I thought it was worth checking back on what we felt were the standouts of the year. 
Anders, did you have any um, anything you'd like to say before you pull out your top five? Uh, just a standard disclaimer that I did not see every movie ever released this year, but not by a long shot. And there are many that I would have loved to have seen, including BPM, Ingrid Goes West, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. But that's okay. Our top fives are reflections of ourselves. Oh, so true. So think? beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Elu? I would like to say that I hate lists and this was very hard. <laughs> okay. Would you like to kick off with your number five, Anders? Yes. So my number five is Amata Escalante's film The Untamed. Oh, that was a podcast fave. <laughs> it was a wonderful um, horror film. We talked about it only a few episodes ago, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, maybe a month or A couple something. of months ago. Yeah. It's a fantastic horror film about this meteorite that crashes uh, into a small town in the middle of nowhere. It gives you sexual, so much sexual pleasure that you get brutally killed by this tentacle alien thing. Anyway, it's a very simple, catchy premise. I think it does a lot with that premise and it's much more sophisticated, I guess, than that may, maybe perhaps makes it sound like. And I thought it hones in on this premise, this idea of uh, sex and sexual pleasure so finely that it like brings this sort of precise clarity to what it's saying about that, which is really, really, I think, interesting. It made me rethink the place that sex has in our society and in the way that we interact as humans, which is it's something that's sort of been done to death in popular culture, this idea that, you know, sex runs everything. But this felt so well done that it was telling me something new about that. So, um, yeah, great film. Recommend it. Yeah, that's the Untamed. I love that movie. Good choice. Thank you. So one of my top five is a movie that I saw back in January and then again later on. 20th Century Women, directed by Mike Mills. Great film. Yeah. Brilliant film. We all love it. (laughs) I'm glad to know. I absolutely adored this film. It's very well made, beautiful, um, has an excellent pace, brilliant narration by a number of the key characters. So the main character is... Dorothea, a 55-year-old woman played by Annette Benning, who gives a brilliant performance. And I believe there was some outrage that she was not nominated for an a Oscar. A lot of outrage. Because um, I think it was released last year in America. It was, um, yeah. yeah. But, but I didn't see it until, until January. It came out in 2017 in Australia. Yeah, so she's sort of the main focus and her relationship with her teenage son. But also Greta Gerwig is a main character. Abby, she's a photographer who's going through some, um, you know, she's kind of growing old, growing, not growing old. She's in her early 20s and kind of growing up um, and getting to know herself, getting to, um, you know, know the world and, and understand how she operates within it. And then a man played by Billy Crudup who is sort of less important in terms of it being mostly a focus on women on the two women in the film but he is key he's integral in providing like an emotional support source for both of the women and for kind of you know coming to his own understandings it's it's just stunning it's a period film set in 1979 I love the attention that it pays to these women as characters and as people as people with backgrounds and with feelings and that they're not always you know then it's not black and white it's not like Star Wars where someone's evil or they're not people who can be angry and aggressive and imperfect and make mistakes and that they're allowed to understand that they've made a mistake and kind of grow through that on screen Uh, I mean you know we had decades and decades of, of films not doing that with with its characters and I love every single time when when we see someone get to act that and go through that powerful experience on screen 
I can't stop thinking about this film, so that's why it's in my top five. Cool. Yeah, it was definitely very, very close to my top five too. I absolutely love that film. We discussed my number five back in episode 24 and I think this is a, like a film that will will grow in time, I think. This is a really, really auspicious debut for Julia Ducournau and the movie is Raw, which is about the vegetarian veterinarian student Justine, played by Garance Marillier, uh, who I think also has a very, very bright future. Mm. She undergoes a pretty horrific hazing ritual involving eating a rabbit liver at this prestigious vet school and suddenly um, all her parameters change and she starts undergoing these physiological changes. Um, Roy is really, really loaded with memorable sequences, I think, and it's got a really, really great score, one of the year's best. But also it's a film that's a bit aware of its edginess and occasionally it's a bit style over substance, but for the most part the stylistic flourishes really serve Justine's world and her reinvention. Um, and I'm really, really keen to see what Julia does next. Great film. Mm. Um, and great to see some horror represented um, on our list. And yeah. My number four is four. For Ragnarok, Taika Waititi's um, Marvel really? movie. Yeah, this... Oh, you loved it so much. I've seen it twice now. The first time I saw it, I was kind of drunk, which kind of added to it, the um, enjoyment of the film. It's a very... it's. I think it's the best film that Hollywood's made, produced this year by far. Um, it's entertaining. It's funny. It's God, it's funny. Much as Laura Dern is Laura Dern in space, Jeff Goldblum is Jeff Goldblum <laughs> in space, and there's a lot of humour in that. There's a lot of... You know, <laughs> I sort of bleach on about this. This is like, for David Stratton, it's shaky camp. And for me, it's my one bugbear is like my, uh, Hollywood movies that are constantly racing through locations and not spending five seconds anywhere. But like the bulk of this film takes place on one planet in like one really interesting uh, sort of gladiatorial arena and surrounds. And I felt like I really got to know that kind of neon colour crazy space really well and I thought there was a lot of humour there and a lot of sort of subversive anti-colonialist kind of stuff yeah, too which is really yeah, interesting and that sort point. of Maori humour, Kiwi humour, it was really entertaining. It was entertaining. <laughs> I love you put this thing on top yes, of Yes, loved it. Yeah. But I really wish I had my hammer. Hammer? Quite unique. It was made from this, this special metal from the heart of a dying star and when I spun it really, really fast it gave me the ability to fly. You rode a hammer? No, I, I didn't ride the hammer. The hammer rode you on your back. No, no, no. I, I used to spin it really fast and it, it would it would pull me off the... Oh, my God. The hammer pulled you off? The ground. It would pull me off the ground up into the air and I would fly. Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me. Sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this hammer and that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. It's a nice way of putting it. My number four is Let the Sunshine In by Claire Denis, which I saw at MIFF. I did speak about this uh, in one of our MIFF dispatches. It was not what I expected it to be. It was touted as some romantic comedy and I was like, oh, what? where is that coming from in Claire Denis' life? But a filmmaking life, I should say. The translation of the title is is incorrect. So the, the French title is something like The Bright Light, inside or something anyway it's something awkward some awkward direct translation so it's just called let the sunshine in and of course i just keep thinking of that song from here this is basically about juliette binoche and she's a woman either 50 or in her late 40s i can't remember but they do specify in the film um, and she is single and just going around and spends the entire film looking for a boyfriend basically and finding a new you know having a new relationship that is only short-lived and then moving on and to another one and it's just really wonderful and it's kind of about her searching for love but really it's this film is an 
anti-romantic comedy, I think, because um, it doesn't really have any bitterness about it either, um, even though I'm calling it an anti-romantic comedy. It's about Juliette Binoche and she carries it. It's such an awkward film and I think if you don't – if it wasn't her um, and if you don't have a relationship with – a screen relationship with Juliette Binoche, then maybe this film wouldn't appeal to you because it's a little – yeah, it's just a little kind of um, dense, I suppose, in, in some ways. But I loved it. It's very funny. Um, Juliette Binoche gives her character real personality that is understandable and consistent throughout the film and so you understand where she's coming from and why she's saying the things she does. Um, and it's just got a really bizarre ending and if I don't want to say who who it is in the end because it was a complete shock to me and just very funny but it's really wonderful and goes to this really wonderful place so that yeah that is a definite highlight for the year and it hasn't been released in Australia and I don't know when it when it will be or if it will be maybe it's a hard sell but uh, I hope that we get a chance to see it here I'm dying to see it and it's based on a Roland Barthes book isn't it I, don't, I think it's I think I, it is yeah someone mentioned yeah, that yeah. I haven't seen any concrete evidence that it is but but it wouldn't surprise me if it's inspired by or based on in some way yeah, yeah cool cool oh my number four definitely has had a colossal release and that movie is Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan <coughs> this is like a <laughs> film about hundreds of thousands of British and allied troops trapped on a beach in northern France at the end of World War Two and the efforts to get them to England as they're being besieged by fighters and enemy boats and hemmed in by advancing troops Um, Seeing this film at IMAX, which may not have been possible for everyone else who saw it, really kind of lodged in my mind as being a a titanic achievement. I walked out at the time thinking Nolan actually read all the feedback that he got about Interstellar and left his ego at the door. There was no lens flare or rambling philosophical backstory. Uh, There's no mood jumping from humongous set piece to set piece. So in Dunkirk there's like one paragraph of backstory in the opening minute and from there on you just kind of follow these characters reacting to these situations. And he juggles, unlike um, Star Wars, he really fluidly juggles these three different storylines all happening in different temporal paces. And there was a lot of low-key performances and the final act was probably the best use of Winston Churchill this year and there was a lot of uses of Winston Churchill in 2017. Um, mm. And it was just a really good reminder that behind all the Nolan bros and all these people who leap to the defence of anything he says and all the bombast of Hans Zimmer's score and all these lofty philosophical contracts, he can actually just t- pump out a story in 100 minutes that really works and it really worked for me. Cool. My third favourite film is from way back at the start of the year. Um, Kiba Menconcha. Sorry, I'm going to stuff up this name. Kiba Menconcha Filho's Aquarius. Oh, fantastic. Which is a wonderful portrait. I think I said it at the time, and I uh, stand by that. That it's a wonderful portrait, uh, not only of this woman and her day to day life in Brazil, um, but also the ways that we use home and objects, particularly objects, I found really interesting uh, in this film. It's interesting how, yeah, we use um, objects, furniture, the things, the stuff, that the everyday stuff that we surround us to build a life. It's a really lovely film. It's funny. It's quite serious, deals with some big issues. And I watched it, I watched it the other day with my mum, actually, and she was... She was similarly impressed and she did make the observation this is the kind of film that you would never, ever see in Hollywood. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like this portrait of older womanhood or just older people in general, yeah, in a way that's not patronising, that treats it seriously and 
interestingly. I think it's a wonderful film and some really good, strong filmmaking in it as well, you know, the flashbacks and set design and that beautiful department that she lives in and that she's defending in the film is is quite stunning. So yeah, it's wonderful a, it's use of music as well. Yeah, yes, yes, definitely, yeah. It's a stunning, yeah. I think it's a stunning film actually, yeah. So yeah. do recommend. My next one in my top five is Nocturama. Bertrand Benello's film that came out or that screened at MIFF this year and I don't know if it's going to get a release. So actually it probably won't because it's on Netflix. Actually it's really unfortunate. I feel like two of the best films this year and the films that deserve big screens the most are Nocturama, Bertrand Benello's film and Mudbound by D. Rees which I love and have spoken about in several different places now. They're both on Netflix only in Australia, unfortunately, so you won't get a chance to see them, I don't think. Um, But I saw Nocturama at Acme, and Acme has this incredibly large screen, brilliant sound system. Um, It's a really wonderful place to see films. And this is just so engrossing and absorbing. So basically for the first 10 minutes, there's no dialogue. Um, And then there's a little bit, and then there's probably another 15 minutes with almost no dialogue, and then it, it shifts pace. So this is a really interesting film about a group of youths unspecified youths with without any given background although they seem to be um, from a a variety of different ethnic class economic backgrounds who perform a terrorist attack a, a number of coordinated terrorist attacks in Paris and then go to hide out in a shopping mall afterwards and it's Incredible! It's just so well done. It's so sharp. It's brilliantly choreographed. I almost in some ways think that it's... I mean, it's choreographed in its covering of, of the terrain of Paris and then it's, it's choreographed in the sense that some sequences almost have this musical quality to them where characters interact with one another. There is this incredible soundtrack, some of it written, a score written by Benello himself and some of it uh, this selection of pop songs. It's not a universally loved film. It's a very intelligent film but it's not universally loved. A lot of people think that it is uh, perhaps irresponsible in the fact that it just tries to shrug off any ideological you know meaning for these terrorist attacks but I think just as a pure exercise in filmmaking it's excellent and uh, one of the best films of the year hard agree and I will elaborate shortly (laughs) (laughs) cool my number three was also fairly divisive as well. I th- a lot of people have come down against this film, I suppose, for a number of reasons. Um, and also it's the first film that I've seen at a press screening that hasn't been given release yet, but it comes out on New Year's Day, and this film is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. So I thought this was a really, really great film for a number of reasons, partly because um, if there's one thing that can sum up 2017 is that this was a year that was defined by consistent, prolonged frustration of women speaking out and the media being used as a justice system where the courts and Mm. politics were kind of inaccessible Mm. to people. And we're likely to see a lot more films about, more specifically about this sort of stuff over the next months and years. Um, after those inspired by last year's political shifts, I'm guessing, a few, like The Post you know, is coming out shortly and that's very much inf- inspired by political machinations of the last couple of years. So anyway, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is a film by Martin McDonough and anybody who's seen In Bruges or Seven Psychopaths or has been lucky enough to see some of his theatrical productions will know how adept he is at balancing these really, really powerful emotional scenes and this extremely black humour. And that's what's lost a lot of people, I think, is particularly because when it came out, it won the Audience Award at Toronto and eight out of the last ten winners of the Audience Awards have gone on to be nominated for Best Picture. So suddenly there's all this frisson about it and a lot of people went there thinking it was mm. going to be a cathartic film and actually it's 
it's, it's quite problematic, I think, for a lot of people. But if you do get that sense of humour and you can ride these tonal shifts that often happen within one scene where something horrible will be brought up and then suddenly it will be turned into a joke, you know, you're always going to lose a bunch of people when that happens if you're not being uh, born along. But Frances McDormand plays Mildred Hayes, whose daughter was raped and killed seven months before the film begins, and she takes out her anger publicly by denouncing the police chief, Bill Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson, using these three billboards of the title. I loved Sam Rockwell's performance in this. He plays a racist cop who gets some sort of, like, his particular journey ends up becoming almost as important as Francis McDormand's, which I think is where a lot of people also find a lot of problems because he's extremely violent, extremely racist at the beginning, but then he kind of undergoes this sort of changes. And I won't spoil anything by going too far into it. But um, it really worked for me and I am really looking forward to it coming out and hearing what other people have to say about it. Yeah, I'm very curious to see it. Mm, really, really worked. <laughs> Uh, my number two is uh, Nocturama, Bertrand Benello. Um, I, I'll uh, completely endorse everything, Elo, you said about this film. It's almost, It sort of works as a kind of allegory about life in... I, uh, this sounds kind of wanky and lofty, but about life in late capitalist developed economies and how, how state power can be used for the benefits of certain people and not others, essentially. But it, it does that with in a very odd parable-like way so that it's not very of it's not it's not you don't have characters ranting about the system in the film and yet it's about that so that's what I find really interesting and the set design is incredible this department store that they shack up in for the second act of the film um, they really you know it's sort of this stand-in for a particular kind of consumer capitalism and the way that all these teenagers are sort of weirdly sort of obsessed with the objects that are on display in that environment is really interesting and then it really has quite a shocking ending like i i yeah i was i was yeah it really um sort of viscerally affected me so for all of those reasons and everything you said that's why it's my number two for the year cool on netflix see it now my number two is dawson city frozen time Andy and I saw it at MIF and we spoke about it with Anwen Crawford, who was our guest on one of our MIF podcasts, but Anders has not seen it. No. And hopefully you'll get a chance to. I don't know that it's getting a release. It seems like a hard sell, <laughs> you know, a documentary, um, a weird kind of like semi-experimental documentary about a whole lot of old movies that have no consequence now to a lot of people's lives. But hopefully it will get some sort of release or maybe um, a showing at, at some cinema. I thought it was really powerful and I think I spoke at the time that I had some reservations about the way it was edited and some of the focus of the the story that took away a little bit from the fact that this was just a very powerful documentary about the discovery of some silent films that had been frozen under a swimming pool in Dawson City in Canada over 100 years ago and that you know some of them had disintegrated to some extent had water like significant water damage but segments were included in the film and shown um, and it very poetically I mean Bill Morrison does this and he often edits images to found footage to to music um, so he's very talented at doing that but it had a very poetic kind of sense in assembling this footage this bric-a-brac and that this is a, both a document of 
what had occurred in Dawson City and what had occurred historically and what had occurred when he found it and also just a physical history in the fact that it assembles these films. And so it serves those two purposes, I think, which is perhaps why it's it's another reason why it might be a hard sell um, and perhaps another reason why it, it didn't get on the shortlist for yeah, it was a real shame. Um, the Best Documentary mm. Awards at the Academy Awards for, for next year. That might be a reason that, that it's just maybe – not you know there's there's no one line that you can really give synopsis yeah. you can give yeah. of this film and perhaps that's it but I found it very moving very tactile um, and very tied up with my own interests which is <laughs> you know film preservation and things like that and and discovering lost or seemingly lost films and artifacts I think it would work just as well almost on streaming services too because yeah there's such a low quality to some of the found footage that I think it's just something you could easily get caught up in. I also absolutely love the film and I narrowly missed my top five too. Um, my number two is another film that has is yet to come out. Uh, it's coming out over summer and this is a the film Warwick Thornton's Sweet Country, which I just caught last week and it absolutely blew me away. I, it, was, it was just so mesmerising. Mm. This way that Thornton puts this story together is like absolutely effortless. I can't get my head around quite how he does it so well because it just kind of falls into place as you're kind of following these characters around and then before you realise that you're extremely tense. This, but it's still so languidly paced. It's really strange. Um, if you look at somebody who's a confident filmmaker, usually there's a, there's a smidge of smugness or some sort of they think they're smarter than you, but there's none of that at all with, with Thornton's work. And also Nick Meyer's editing, I think, is really, really wonderful in this because there's often a case where you'll, characters will meet each other and suddenly there'll be a flash forward to a very key scene that between them later on that sometimes is in a film it might be something they remember or it might be something that happened off screen in the future but then you're just suddenly thrown, given that little scene and brought back so you're kind of always being given this almost omnipotent view of the storyline but still you know Thornton is obviously in control but it also loads the story with weight and this sort of intent and the land is obviously a key part of this because it's shot in Northern Territory in South Australia so many other times you see the outback it's usually with an outsider's eye so often, you know, if you think of Nick Rogue's Walkabout or mm. Waking Fright or something like that, mm. there's always this idea that there's some foreigners coming in going, whoa, look at this. And so there's this sort of feverish, crazy, hallucinatory quality to something like, the, you know, the cinematography in Walkabout. Or there's this the very, very ordinary way it's treated in something like Ten Canoes or, you know, all the Hollywood version in Rabbit Proof Fence. There's lots of these kind of big reds and oranges and ochres and stuff. But here it's just... There's something else. I can't put my finger on it, but it's like I've never seen it before. So, sorry, I guess the storyline is a bit about, you know, it's about justice, basically. So, um, without giving too much away, there's a, a murder that happens and an Aboriginal man is, you know, is responsible for it, but then there's a whole bunch of stories around this murder. And so you get these various forms of justice and ultimately, of course, you know, nature is the most powerful thing here. I wholeheartedly recommend it. For some people, I think it's, it's going to be, the story's going to be too ugly and too difficult because it is. it does come across, you know, it, I can't help but deal with the idea of, you know, Aboriginal slavery, I suppose, in the, in the 20s and 30s, which, you know, is a hard sell, um, like some of the other films we've talked about. But um, absolutely, I thought it was the best Australian film I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, that comes out in January. Amazing. I'm seeing it this week, so I'm pretty, oh, yeah. pretty psyched. Very keen to see what you think. Cool. Well, we've come to my number one of the year, which, if you know me, is probably not a surprise. It's Joanna Dimitia's number one. It's everyone's, but not everyone, many people's number one. It is Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. I'm just coming back to the mic to say, yes. <laughs> it's uh, Eloise. You've, you've, you've had this film in your life for a year now. I have. I've talked about this film three times on the podcast already, <laughs> so I decided I didn't need to include it in my top five. But I'm, I feel so blessed 
okay. to have had it in my life since January. Yeah. I'm kind of uh, annoyed that Eloise will have it in her life for longer than <laughs> I ever will. Uh, anyway, no, um, what, what I love about this film, there's so many things I love about this film and I don't want to spend too much time talking about it because we have all ranted about it at length, particularly on Twitter. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to get lofty here for a second. The thing I love about cinema and about art in general is that it, it can, when it's firing on all cylinders, give you access to emotions and ideas that are otherwise inaccessible to you in your day-to-day life, particularly if your day-to-day life is as busy and frantic and as driven by economic forces as it is for so many of us in late capitalist Australia. So when it's firing on all cylinders, it can give you that photogenic, that quality of like emotion that can, that images can bring out in you and you're not entirely sure why or ra- you can't rationalise it until after uh, the effect, but you know that it has really heavily emotionally affected you. Anyway, this doesn't happen very often at the movies, I've, I've got to say. So when it does, I think it's a sign of a very special film. And when I saw Call Me By Your Name, it was by far and away the most emotional experience I think I've ever had in a cinema, I would say. Wow. Ever. And I think part of it may be because of the context, uh, seeing it at the end of a busy week, the middle of winter, middle of um, the middle of the year, really, in Melbourne. And here is this gorgeous portrait of this endless summer in the northern Italy in the 1980s and this beautiful queer romance between a teenager and a young man in northern Italy. And I just something, I mean, that premise alone and then the way it's shot by Luca Guadagnino, who's so good at capturing like language to me it feels like pure wish fulfillment this film on so many levels not just that he gets to bang army hammer but because they have endless free time they're like this beautiful hermetically sealed kind of experience and the film's all about really that's what's really interesting sorry i'm rambling here but uh, that's what's really interesting i think about the film is it's got this this beautiful romance but it's like got this weird self-reflexivity about it because films uh, themselves in this way are these hermetically sealed stories with a beginning, middle and end that are not real and can never happen in real life. And this film is about an experience that is quite fanciful or if it does happen in real life, if you're fortunate enough to go through a romance, you know, on the emotional scale of this film, it's own thing. It's not You can't live your entire life at the emotional register of Call Me By Your Name is what I'm saying here. And... That is what makes it so beautiful. And it's also what makes it so tragic. But it's just a wonderful film. It comes out Boxing Day. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface, but I'm writing a very lengthy piece on it at the moment. So look out for that to be published in the next couple of weeks. Beautiful film. I have sighed a lot during Anders' <sighs> little <Yeah>. speech. <laughs> you didn't even mention Michael Stuhlberg's monologue. Oh, the yes. greatest scene of any film in the year, I think. His monologue is extraordinary. Uh, again, the wish fulfillment thing. Yeah, wishing your, your parents would be that understanding. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. And just to have it so lucidly explained. Yeah, really interesting. And just how unabashedly, how unashamedly intellectual that family were without being overly pretentious or a little bit, but that was interesting. And just all the lounging around. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> Uh, okay, my number one I think is actually also Andy's number one. So we can maybe fawn over yeah, this one together. together. It's Greta Gerwig's Lady yes. Bird. Oh God, how did you know? And I was saying to the guys earlier, I feel somewhat 
predictable or something or stupid, you know, including this and 20th century women because I was thinking about them and they're both quite similar in the fact that they're um, – and, and Lady Bird is about Lady Bird, this um, teen teenager in her senior year of high school played by um, Saoirse Ronan. But I think it's almost more about – her mother to some extent or at least it's very very powerfully about her relationship with her mother played by Laurie Metcalf and the fact that it's about this woman kind of coming to an understanding of her her own self and her own power and the power of words and and how you know sometimes futile it is in in trying to have conversations with someone because it can just be be very difficult and I think that they're both similar in that way and that they do give space for a greater personal understanding of what a, a woman who is a mother goes through and that that's really beautiful but I adore this film so much and I spoke about it on another podcast and the three of us had just a, a f- consensus that this was a flawless film and beautiful. Um, it's it's another kind of period piece. I mean, it's period. It's set in two thousand two, and it's very well done. Again, it's kind of unassuming in the same way that Come by Your Name, set in nineteen eighty three, doesn't really announce itself in any way. I mean, the same kind of thing. There's just a few weird weird fashion contributions uh, from the designers that that suggest this is two thousand and two, but otherwise, um, not really. Anyway. It's, it's beautiful, written and directed by Greta Gerwig. It's her debut, directorial debut, but she has written features before, written and co-written films before. So she's clearly been around. She's been on a lot of film sets. She's obviously very, very interested in, in all of the machinations of filmmaking. And you can totally see that unabashed interest and investment on display here. Everything is, is really superb in terms of, you know, filmmaking and emotionally – um, this is just a, a top film. Totally agree. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it comes out on the 15th of February and we'll probably talk about it then, I imagine, because this is another film that we saw on a press screening that hasn't been properly released. Um, I think it's also, I just mentioned also that it's uh, difficult to do this well, I think, these sorts of mother-daughter relationships or this coming-of-age stuff. I mean, I think Perks of Being a Wallflower was really great. Manchester by the Sea touched on it really well. I thought Edge of Seventeen, which was the very first film we reviewed this year on the podcast, yes. we also did it quite well. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was just astonishing. For a directorial debut, this is kind of amazing. If um, Twin Peaks The Return got put in a cinema this year at all, it would be like yeah, number one for the year. that's that's it. It was Kahudu Cinemas number one. And Fight Sounds number two. I wondered if it was going to be on your list, Andy. Yeah, I did contemplate it, but it's not a movie, as much as David Lynch would like it to be. But, you know, if it got put in a cinema, Mm. then Then for sure it would be game on. But it it hasn't, so there's plenty of opportunity to hear me talking about it elsewhere (laughs) on the internet. There's no need for me to talk about it Everyone listen to Andy's other podcast. Yes, and we're going to do another episode too um, soon about the deleted scenes that have just been put out there um we're running out of time so thank you very much for listening to cultural capital throughout 2017 and particularly to the end of this episode we really appreciate it um we'll be back in the middle of january to talk about movies that are coming out in the middle of summer i suppose thank you very much for listening and goodbye bye season's greetings